Viewpoint on Mormonism, the program that examines the teachings of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from a biblical perspective. Viewpoint on Mormonism is sponsored by Mormonism Research Ministry. Since 1979, Mormonism Research Ministry has been dedicated to equipping the body of Christ with answers regarding the Christian faith in a manner that expresses gentleness and respect. And now, your host for today's Viewpoint on Mormonism. So glad you could be with us for this edition of Viewpoint on Mormonism. I'm your host, Bill McKeever, founder and director of Mormonism Research Ministry. With me today is Eric Johnson, my colleague at MRM. We continue to look at a book that was written in 2011 by a man named Gary C. Lawrence. He wrote a book titled Mormons Believe What? Question mark, exclamation point. Subtitled Fact and Fiction About a Rising Religion. Mr. Lawrence wrote this book in order to set the record straight regarding what Mormons really do believe as opposed to what could be considered stereotypes that are out there among the general public. The reason we wanted to look at it is because a lot of the things that he brings up are things that we have heard from others as well. And even though he is not a general authority in the church and really has no authority to speak on doctrinal issues, unless, of course, they conform to what the leadership has said, Still, I think it's important to look at some of the things that Mr. Lawrence is saying, because as I've mentioned, other Mormons are saying them as well. In chapter 12 of his book, titled, Mormons Have Secret Temples and Magic Underwear, he starts off this chapter by saying, there is no religious belief that cannot somehow be made to look weird. Eric, I would agree with what he says there, but I think what's being overlooked is that a lot of professing Christians look at the Mormon temple endowment ceremony and everything that is connected with it as being quote-unquote weird because it doesn't conform to what we understand Christianity to be. So if other professing Christians are looking at their religious beliefs regarding the temple as being weird or strange, don't you think that Mormons should at least pay attention to why we would consider them to be odd? I think much of the problem is that first half of the title, Mormons Have Secret Temples. And we talk to a lot of Latter-day Saints at temple open houses, and one of the things they get upset when we say that the things that go on in there are secret, they say, no, it's sacred. But the Mormons are not allowed to talk about those things, and so that conjures up all kinds of images of what's going on in there. And we try to set the record straight by trying to say there's no celestial bed in there where they're consummating marriages and all the rest, but just the very idea that... They're not allowed to talk about it when, when you go back to the Bible, they told you everything that went on in there. And I think that's a good point to bring out. There's really nothing that is not described in the ancient temple ceremony in the Old Testament. We know everything about it. But yet Mormons, at least up until 1990, had a phrase in the temple endowment ceremony itself where Mormon patrons, as they are called, participating in the endowment, were told to take an obligation of secrecy. Now, after 1990, that phrase was dropped, but still the admonition to not discuss the particulars of the temple ceremony still go on today. And I noticed that in this chapter, chapter 12, Mr. Lawrence doesn't go into a lot of the particulars of the temple endowment ceremony. No. He gives us a very vague rendition of what he thinks it involves, but after reading this chapter, I really have no idea what goes on in a temple other than this vague description that he gives, which certainly, knowing the details of the ceremony as I do, he certainly doesn't go into those areas. He doesn't go into those areas, nor does he go into the areas where Christianity ever 
practice the types of things that Mormons practice today. He says the first thing to understand about temples is that they have always been an integral part of Christianity. And I would argue, where's the evidence for this? Now, he gives, again, what I think is a vague comparison where he talks about temples, whether an actual structure or a secluded location, are to be places apart from everyday life, a place to retreat from the cares, temptations, and profane eyes of the world and to commune with deity. Okay, I get that, but how does that compare with what Mormons have today? I mean, you had the Jerusalem temple. It was the only temple that the Jews are supposed to have anything to do with. And today, the Mormons have over 150 temples, and those are the only places where you can make those secret or sacred obligations and learn the different uh, tokens and new names that they're going to receive inside of a temple. Well, on that same page, 82, he writes, at times temple worship was restricted to those who held a special priesthood, such as the tribe of Levi, while at other times it has been accessible to all who are worthy practicing followers of the Lord. He needs to be corrected on this. At times, temple worship was restricted to those who held a special priesthood, such as the tribe of Levi. That's not accurate. The tribe of Levi was set apart to minister in the temple, but temple worship itself was open to all the people of Israel. Mm -hmm. And when he talks about those who were worthy... Folks, the whole purpose for the temple yeah. was to bring out the fact you're not worthy. That's why sacrifice was being made, an atonement. A vicarious sacrifice was being made on the part of the sins of the people. They knew that. They knew very well what it was about. But do you see the mistake that he's making? Based on his presuppositions, he assumes that because Mormons today have to be worthy to be able to go to the temple, that they would have had to have been worthy back in those days. He makes a fatal error because he doesn't know his history. He goes on to say on that same page, page 82, the purpose of temples throughout history is to focus us on Christ, the Messiah, his mission, atonement, and resurrection, and teach his followers the mysteries of the kingdom of God. If, in fact, the Mormon temple endowment ceremony is a restoration of what things were done anciently, why is it that this is completely missing? Hmm. Teaching his followers the mysteries of the kingdom of God the temple ceremony in ancient Israel really wasn't for teaching anything at all. That no. was done elsewhere. The sacrifices of animals was first and foremost. Now, he tries to make this kind of a connection that somehow it wasn't being done right and had to be changed, where he writes on page 83, though the temple at the time of Christ was not functioning according to God's original intent. The Savior nonetheless recognized it as his father's house and one fine day made life rough for the money changers who had turned it into a temple of commerce. Hmm. I think what he's doing, he's conflating the error of the money changers with what was going on in the actual ceremony or ritual itself. You would think that if the ritual itself was not functioning according to God's original intent, Jesus would have had something to say about that. Again, what went on in the temple during Jesus' time was no big secret. There was no secret about that. Jesus would have known if the ceremony itself had been corrupted and they were not doing what they were supposed to do, which was basically the sacrificing of animals. But to try and say that somehow because there were money changers, outside of the temple grounds, 
that were doing something they shouldn't have been doing. To equate that with the temple not functioning according to God's original intent, I think is quite a stretch. But then he goes into using these Gnostic writings known as the Nag Hammadi Library. And when I read that, I just couldn't help but roll my eyes and put a palm to my forehead like, you've got to be kidding me. He says early Christian texts such as the Nag Hammadi Library reference elements of temple worship and leave little doubt that the temple ceremony with its attendant practice of making covenants or promises with the Lord was practiced by Christ's disciples following his death and resurrection. The Nakamadi writings were 4th century. They were buried in, in a jar. And now all of a sudden, because they find these writings, Mr. Lawrence and the Mormon Church, I might argue, are going to assume that this is the way Christianity was supposed to be practicing. It's interesting how they go after something that clearly can be found from the 4th century, although there's some that say that they could have been written earlier. But again, that's an argument from silence. But somehow, these 4th century writings are the way Christians are supposed to believe and practice. But yet, folks, the 4th century falls clearly into the area of what Mormons would call the apostate era. Yeah. (laughs) So how do you know this isn't part of the apostasy? There was this great conspiracy, apparently, that the Christians of that day, including Athanasius, decided they were going to get rid of those. But they didn't consider these to be authoritative. They were later writings. And so the early Christians said to not have those as part of the canon. Perhaps that's why they were buried in a desert. Well, he goes on to say the differences between temple worship before and after Christ result from the fulfillment of the law of Moses and the establishment of the higher law brought by Christ. The temple under Mosaic law included the sacrifice of animals, unblemished firstborn bullocks, sheep, etc., as a symbol of and focus on the coming of the sinless Messiah and his sacrifice for our sins. Once Jesus Christ had accomplished this great atonement, there was obviously no need for the further symbolism through the shedding of blood. Members of the church today symbolically place upon the altar a broken heart and a contrite spirit indeed. Really, is that all that Mormons do in the temple? And I would argue that no, once Jesus' sacrifice was made, the purpose of the temple was no longer necessary. He is the final sacrifice, and I think the New Testament brings that out, does it not? Well, the book of Hebrews talks about how Jesus fulfills the role of priest and prophet and king, and he basically takes over what the Old Testament temple was all about, so you no longer needed it. But it would be an argument from silence to suggest that somehow Christians were involved in the practice at the temple between AD 30 and AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. You would have to say that that happened with no supporting evidence whatsoever. Yeah, we don't see Christians making a concerted effort to try and involve themselves in any type of temple ceremony in in Jerusalem. But as he brings out here, he says, As a symbol of this transition, the rending of the veil at the moment of Christ's death on the cross signified that the law of Moses had been fulfilled. No longer would only one priest be allowed into the temple— Temple worship would be open to all worthy disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mr. Lawrence, where are you getting this? 
No longer would only one priest be allowed into the temple. Are we really to assume, Mr. Lawrence, that after that temple veil was ripped in two, that the Jews stopped worshiping in the temple, sacrificing animals? Of course they went on doing that same old thing clear up until the time the temple was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. He talks about the sacred garments, magic underwear. Let me just end the show with this statement that is found in the temple endowment ceremony itself. This is the second lecturer in the post-1990 LDS endowment ceremony. It's taken from a book put out by the Tanners called Evolution of the Mormon Temple Ceremony, 1842 to 1990, page 110. This is what Mormons hear when they are going through the temple. You have had a garment placed upon you which you were informed represents the garment given to Adam and Eve when they were found naked in the Garden of Eden, and which is called the garment of the Holy Priesthood. This you were instructed to wear throughout your life. You were informed that it will be a shield and a protection to you inasmuch as you do not defile it, and if you are true and faithful to your covenants. This is where this understanding comes, that the garment, or the underwear, as Mr. Lawrence calls it, somehow has magical principles. Where in the world do we find Christians believing that cloth garments somehow offered a shield and a protection to the person who wears it? Tomorrow we're going to wrap up our study of the book Mormons Believe What by Gary C. Lawrence by looking at his chapter where he argues for an open canon. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information regarding Mormonism Research Ministry, we encourage you to visit our website at www.mrm.org, where you can request our free newsletter, Mormonism Researched. We hope you will join us again as we look at another viewpoint on Mormonism. If you have been blessed by Viewpoint on Mormonism, won't you consider making Mormonism Research Ministry part of your missionary giving? Simply go to mrm.org and click the donate box in the upper right-hand corner. Your support, along with the call letters of this station, are greatly appreciated.